Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday on 3CR at 12 noon. And we thank you for allowing us into your kitchen or your dining room or wherever it is, your car, wherever it is that you're listening to us. We have a press release every every week and we'll be giving that to you shortly, 883, and that's about the attitude of the stranglehold of elite private schools on power in Australia. And uh, a bit later on, we're going to hear about how the government funding increases are just grossly unfair to public education. Victorian state school parents, we found out this week, are raising more than $400 million a year for state schools for very, very basic educational requirements. But we have got some good news for you. We've got a lovely story about a teacher who sees herself as a calming influence and how much she loves teaching her very special children. But first of all, our press release 883, The Stranglehold of the Elite Private Schools on Power in Australia. Mike Seacombe of the Saturday paper of the 13th of March, I don't know how many of our listeners uh, get the Saturday paper, but it's well worth getting for its articles. Mike Seacombe in that um, particular version of the Saturday paper, has written an insightful article on the rarefied and entitled Boys Only Private School Network, which has created massive imbalances and injustice in the halls of power. As a springboard for his article, he uses a comedian who regards himself as a renegade member of the privileged classes of Adelaide, a gentleman called Francis Greenslade who's best known for his work on the infamous, or perhaps it's the famous ABC program, Mad as Hell. Once again, I don't know how many of you people watch Mad as Hell, but um, I think a lot of us do enjoy it. Now, apart from the background information on the current Christian Porter's rapes allegation matter, the article exposes two very interesting pieces of information. Firstly, Greenslade himself describes the attitude engendered in boys who attend the elite private schools of the nation because he himself went to St Peter's in Adelaide and has experienced it. And secondly, the article lists the numbers of graduates from these schools who govern our country, amongst other things, deciding on the funding of our schools. As I said earlier, Dale's going to tell us about the uneven and grossly unfair funding at the moment from the Morrison government. But for the moment, I'm going to pass you over to Madeline. This, by the way, is an all-girls program. Our boys are a bit under the weather. So is Madeline, but she's here to to battle on. The battle must go on. Yes. Um, Now, she's going to tell us Uh, what Mike Seacombe had to say about the attitude engendered in boys attending elite private schools. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you, Jean. Uh, The attitude engendered in boys attending elite private schools. Greenslade told Seacombe that got into debating as a student at his posh school in Adelaide, St Peter's College, 
a boys-only school favoured by the South Australian establishment. He himself did not regard himself as a member of the establishment, but, quote, there was definitely a cohort of boys, he says, who were arrogant and self-entitled, but I suspect that they were arrogant and self-entitled before they even got to school. It's often the parents, he thinks. St Peter's equipped Greenslade with skills as a debater and the qualifications for university. What it did not equip him for, though, was women. It was difficult, he recalls. I think that the main thing for me about going to a single-sex boys' school is that once I got out, I was not prepared for there to be a completely different gender. You know, talking to women and just dealing with women as though they were people did take me a while. At university, Greenslade's passion for debating took him into even more rarefied company. He met people who are now politicians, judges, lawyers, the heads of ASX 200 corporations. This is hardly surprising. Not only does debating attract the brightest and most articulate students, it's often seen as part of preparation for public life, providing skills particularly useful in politics and the law. Greenslade never had ambitions in these areas. He simply enjoyed the cut and thrust of an argument, the performance. He was very good at it and went on to become an adjudicator of others. And that's how he first encountered Christian Porter, who was then a student at the elite boys-only Hale School in Perth. It was at a competition between school debating teams in 1987. I was the South Australian adjudicator in 1987 in Perth, so I would have adjudicated him, and I was part of the committee that chose the Australian school's team. So I would have put him on the national team, Greenslade says. He must have been good, but I have absolutely no recollection of him at all. It's often said that eye-watering fees paid for places at some of Australia's elite non-government schools are an investment in the child's future social network, far more than in their academic future. Isn't that the truth? Greenslade does, however, have a very precise recollection of another member of the team, an exceptionally bright young woman, a girl, actually, from his home state, South Australia. She was a very, very good debater. She was selected for the state team in year 10, which was pretty unheard of, he said. He can still clearly remember the grand final debate of the 1987 National Schools Competition. The topic was, the future justifies optimism. And South Australia was to argue the negative. The other team redefined the issue so cleverly that Greenslade, who was watching from the audience but not adjudicating, recalls telling the South Australian coach, I have no idea how they're going to get out of this. It was that girl, the second speaker, who got them out of it. And I thought she won the debate for us. They were friends and saw each other regularly at debating events over nearly a decade, including a big one held at the University of Sydney in January 1988, where he was awarded the best speaker gong. Greenslade was not, however, among those in whom she confided about what allegedly happened there. 
He supports calls for an independent inquiry into Attorney General Christian Porter in the wake of the sexual assault allegation. Well, thank you very much. Uh, This is all very interesting. Uh, There's a whole network of people who now know a great deal about these debating teams back Mm. in the 1980s. Fascinating stuff. But we'll have a bit of a break and so we'll be back to tell us a little bit more about what happens to these graduates of the elite school network and where, what happens to them after school and university. Very interesting. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now, we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now, it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card. And once a year, your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. This is 3CR and you're listening to the Dogs Program, the first Saturday afternoon program. And we've got Sorrel now to tell us about the graduates of elite school networks around Australia and what happens to them after they leave school and university. Over to you, Sorrel. Thank you, Jean. So, yes, I'll be telling us today about the graduates of the elite school network in the corridors of power in Australia. The alumni of St. Peter's Adelaide alone, including eight South Australian premiers, plus two who went on to lead New South Wales and Western Australia, as well as a roll call of prominent political, legal, business and scientific figures, including three Nobel laureates, Greenslade believes that the current crisis for Christian Porter is not about law. It is about privilege and entitlement and the club of people like those he went to school with and debated against, who went on to careers in law, judiciary, public service, business, media, and particularly politics. The composition of the Morrison government illustrates the point. 16 of the 22 members of the cabinet are men, save for one of these all are white. The Saturday paper has established the educational backgrounds of 15 of them. 11 went to non-government schools, 
mostly elite private ones. Seven of them, including Morrison himself, attended boys-only institutions. The treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, provides some diversity. His schooling was elite, but also co-educational and Jewish Orthodox. This world is so small that both communications minister Paul Fletcher, a former dux of the private Sydney Grammar School, and health minister Greg Hunt, who attended the Peninsula School in Victoria, were also in attendance at the 88 debating competition. Porter is from a similar rarefied pedigree. The son of Charles Chiller Porter, an Olympic high jumper turned Liberal Party power broker in Western Australia. Chiller's own father, Charles Robert Porter, served in the Queensland state government from 1966 to 1980 and was appointed the Minister for Aboriginal and Islander Affairs in Premier Joe Biecki Peterson's fifth ministry. But when one looks more broadly at the composition of the federal parliament, the numbers tell a similar story of homogeneity. Just 23% of coalition members and senators are women, compared with 47% for Labor and 60% for the Greens. The Conservatives' women problem, more accurately, a lack of women problem, has been the subject of commentary for years. It flared up particularly about the time of the dumping of Malcolm Turnbull from the Liberal leadership, with claims of sexism and bullying. Several capable women, among them Julia Banks, Kelly O'Dwyer and Deputy Leader Julie Bishop, subsequently quit politics. As Bishop reminded us again in an interview this week, a group of men describing themselves as the big swinging dicks conspired to thwart her career. Other Liberal women complained at the time but stayed on. Senator Linda Reynolds was one of them. After she publicly lamented in August 2018, I do not recognise my party at the moment. I do not recognise the values. I do not recognise the bullying and intimidation that has gone on. Reynolds, the Defence Minister, is now a central figure in another gendered crisis for the government, accused of being insufficiently supportive after the alleged rape in March 2019 of one of her staffers, Brittany Higgins, then aged 24, by a more senior staff member in Reynolds' ministerial office. Oh, thank you very much. Isn't that fascinating? Fascinating mm-hmm. stuff. The, um, you know, it's the stuff of novels, isn't it? These people all know each other. I think somebody should write a novel about the debates of 1998. Yeah. Um, that would be an interesting read. Yeah, fabulous. I mean, truth is getting stranger than fiction, I think. Very true. Uh, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, these um, networks in the corridors of power. I think that is what Mike Seacombe is trying to tell us. Mm. And um, the the private school, boys' schools, are... Uh, also have to be uh, put alongside the products from the private school, girls' schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're at a bit at odds at the moment too. So the networks mean, of course, that both the men and the women haven't got a clue about what goes on in the rest of the Australian society. They live in well, a We are what them, aren't we? It strikes me as absurd when she says she doesn't recognise her party. She must have been in serious denial if she thinks that the Liberal Party has ever been anything but a boys' club. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 
the values of the Liberals Party are very. I I, I, don't know. I think it's a, I think it's actually a little bit more complicated than that because if in fact you have a, a father who hasn't fathered too many sons but has fathered daughters, um, then you have fathers who are ambitious for their daughters, um, and so you produce somebody like Julie Bishop, mm, who, um, who, who is a very pretty, pretty smart piece of work. Um, you may not agree with her, but she is pretty smart and she has a very um, loving and uh, pushy father behind her, <laughs> as, Paul, as Porter has also. So, well, I, I um, definitely agree with her sentiment of big swinging dicks conspiring to thwart her career. Mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm. I agree. I think she, I think she reminded Lee Sales that it was um, wasn't small swinging dicks; it was big swinging. I'm just not <laughs> sure that she actually corrected Lee Sales on that one. She knew exactly what what they were talking about, and it was apparently yep. a <laughs> Well, at least at least we down in 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 the um, in the peasant classes are finding out a little bit, aren't we? Yes, we are watching. We are. <laughs> Well, I think that's the good thing about living in the 21st century and access to technology really allows us to talk about these things a lot easier than relying on traditional print media as mm. we've had to in the past. Mm. Information spreads very quickly. It's a definite well, work. I guess to the point about how desirable are private schools, and Dale's going to tell us about that, but first we'll have a bit of a break, shall we? We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 
Well, we're still listening to the dogs program and actually we're still dealing with post release 883, which you can see on our website at www.adogs.info. But um, we're still with Mike Seacombe and his very interesting Saturday paper uh, article. And Dale is going to tell us about whether or not we should have these private schools that are producing such strange, strange fellows for the network of the corridors of power in Canberra. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. The article continues. How desirable are private schools? Francis Greenslade wonders whether Australia's private school system is desirable at all. Mike Seacombe does not disagree. He notes that recent events have certainly lit a fire under elite boys' schools, which so disproportionately turn out national leaders. And interestingly, the fire has been fueled by their elite female equivalents. It's a good question. The data shows not only that this country is sliding down international rankings in terms of education, but also that Australia's educational outcomes are more polarised than in most comparable nations. It is clear that students from less advantaged backgrounds suffer in under-resourced schools. But it is less clear whether those from more privileged backgrounds actually benefit much in purely academic terms from private education. An array of socioeconomic factors mean they would likely do, so, do well anyway. He goes on to discuss the usual problems arising from Australia's private school syndrome, trying to be academic about what the dogs see as a very simple problem. He writes... Economists have a term for things that are valued more for the status they advertise than for their utility, positional goods. Perhaps a private school education could be seen in a similar way, as something valued for the status and contacts it provides. It is often said that the eye-watering fees paid for places at some of Australia's elite non-government schools are an investment in a child's future social network far more than in their academic future. Jordana Hunter, Education Program Director at the Grattan Institute, says it's complicated. It can be hard to disentangle learning effects from networking effects. Networks seem to be quite significant in terms of success later in life, and that's above and beyond a cognitive, literacy and numeracy learning effect, she says, which is to say it's not what you know, it's who you know. Hunter offers another insight of particular relevance to politics. It's hard to understand the concerns of people you don't empathise with and hard to empathise with people who you don't know. And when you have leaders drawn from a very narrow privileged background, that has serious ramifications, both in terms of understanding of sexual consent and beyond. Consider, for example, the Morrison government's response to the COVID-19 recession. Women, as the Grattan Institute detailed in a comprehensive report this week, lost their jobs at twice the rate men did. They were saddled with more unpaid work, including supervising children learning remotely. They were less likely to get government support because JobKeeper excluded short-term casuals, who, in the hardest-hit industries, are mostly women. 
Yet the government directed substantial support to sectors such as construction that were little affected. It pumped more resources into apprenticeships, which historically are 70% male, and ignored tertiary education, which is heavily female. Grattan Executive Chief Daniel Wood can cite innumerable examples from childcare to superannuation to homelessness where women are relatively disadvantaged. It comes back to a lack of diversity among politicians, she says. They just haven't had the lived experience and they don't necessarily deal with a lot of people that have had that lived experience. And so we end up focusing on a narrower set of policy issues than we should. This criticism goes beyond gender to class and race issues too. For the moment, the focus is on the treatment of women. Kate Jenkins may be right. Perhaps we have reached a moment of real change, but the club, as Greenslade calls it, is very good at protecting its privilege. It is also very good at silencing its critics by deflecting, intimidating, stonewalling and using the shame felt by its victims against them. But if the past few weeks have shown anything, it's the power of those victims' stories when they are told. Well, listeners, we've outlined what Mike Seacom and his interviewee, uh, Francis Greenslade, have to say about this networking and what goes on in the the corridors of power, uh, these graduates of these elite boys' and girls' schools. But what is the dog's position? The dog's position isn't necessarily that these schools should be abolished, but they should not certainly not be helped with taxpayers' money because they're not open to all taxpayers. And they're not even on about education, as it seems. They're more on about getting the leg up into positions of power and authority. So Mike Seacom has written, we find, a very interesting article, gleaning a lot of insight and information for the Saturday paper readers concerning not only the Chris Porter matter, but also the way our country is run and by whom. The dog's position has always been, and we just don't deviate, that state aid to private schools introduces a cancer into the body politic. And if only for that reason, it's bad public policy. The current scandals racking the Morrison government have their roots in the division of children on the basis of class, creed, colour and gender at school. This division, which is euphemistically called networking, undermines the health of the body politic. We can't really call ourselves a democracy with this kind of um, networking. We're a plutocracy or an aristocracy. Part of Morrison's bleats of moral indignation, it also undermines the rule of law. And the dogs have proved that it undermines the rule of law because of what happened in our court case. And if you want to find out more about that, you can buy um, a book called The Contempt of Court uh, from 3CR and the money goes to 3CR or you can actually read it on our website. But that is our press release 883 for this week and we'll have a bit of a break now. 
So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. still listening to the dogs program on this saturday afternoon the 20th of march 2021 and dale's going to tell us about the government funding increase which is increases which are grossly unfair it's an article that trevor cobalt has put up on his save our schools website over to you dale Thank you, Jean. Yes, Trevor Cobalt's article is titled Government Funding Increases Are Grossly Unfair. They Favour the Most Advantaged Over the Most Disadvantaged. Government funding for private schools increased by six times that for public schools since 2009 to 2010, according to new research by Save Our Schools. SOS National Convener Trevor Cobalt says said the heavy bias against public schools is grossly unfair. Government, Commonwealth and state funding of private schools increased by $2,164 per student adjusted for inflation between 2009 and 10 and 2018, 2019, compared to just $333 per student for public schools. The contrast is even worse in percentage terms. Funding per private school student increased by 22.4% compared to only 2.4% for public schools. That is nearly 10 times the increase for public schools. The stark favouritism in funding private schools is outrageous, especially as public schools enrol over 80% of disadvantaged students and comprise over 90% of all disadvantaged schools in Australia. The vast misallocation of resources to the most advantaged sections of the school population makes it virtually impossible to reduce the achievement gap of three to four years of learning between the most disadvantaged and advantaged students. Mr Kobold said that both Commonwealth and state government funding strongly favoured private schools over public schools. The Commonwealth government increased funding for both public and private schools, but the increase for private schools was nearly double that for public schools. State governments are largely responsible for funding public schools, but they also have favoured private schools. 
They cut funding for public schools by an average of $660 per student compared to an increase of $221 per student for private schools. Mr Kobold said that the prospects for public schools remain bleak for the rest of the decade under the current funding arrangements. Under the bilateral funding agreements between the Commonwealth and state governments, public schools in all states except the ACT will only ever be funded at 91% of their school resourcing standards, the SRS. In contrast, the combination of new special deals for private schools by the Morrison government and continuing overfunding by several state governments will ensure that private schools will be funded at over 100% of their SRS until at least 2029. SOS has estimated that the cumulative underfunding of public schools to 2029 at $60 billion. The cumulative overfunding of private schools to 2029 is estimated at $6 billion. And this is just the tip of the iceberg because of the flaws in the new direct income measure method of funding private schools. Mr Kobold criticised the claim made last week by the Minister for Education, Alan Tudge, that school funding increased by 60% in real terms over the last two decades. This is simply incorrect. A consistent series of Commonwealth and state funding data is not available for the past 20 years. But over 15 years from 2002 and 3, government funding per student in public schools increased by only 11% or 0.7% per year in real terms compared to 36%, 2.1% per year in private schools. Mr Tudge continues the tradition set by previous coalition education ministers in making highly misleading claims about school funding. His claim is based on Commonwealth funding only and ignores the cuts to public school funding over many years by state governments. He also ignores the huge disparity between Commonwealth funding increases and for public and private schools. Mr Kobold called for a fundamental change in Commonwealth and state government funding policies to ensure adequate funding for public schools and the tasks they face. The chronic underfunding of public schools threaten huge costs to, the in to individuals, society and the national economy because it means continuing failure to address disadvantage in education. Councils around the country will put on disability day events and quite a few of them will not include people of colour, First Nations people and black people. So I think it's pretty cool mm -hmm. that everyone you'll hear on air today will be a person of colour and the majority of them will be people with disabilities as well. I think when we were preparing for this show and for this day, we wanted to talk about how we could explain the concept of power from the margins and why it is that we've chosen to focus on black people, indigenous people and people of colour. And I think, you know, in one word, it's intersectionality. It's the fact that people experience forms of oppression, different forms of oppression at the same time. And most people don't realise that you can't have racial justice without disability justice and vice versa. 
We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Well, welcome back to the Dogs Program, and we've still got a few a few more bits and pieces that are of great interest here, if you stick with us. Sorrel is going to tell us about the Victorian State School parents who, according to the Auditor-General, spent a record $400 million on free education in, I think it was 2019. Imagine what they've been spending in the last year in the covid times on computers and so on. So over to you, Sorrel. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I'll be reading this article by Adam Carey and Anna Pritz entitled Victorian State School Parents Spend Record $400 million on Free Education. Victorian state school families spent more than $400 million last year in parent payments on educational essentials, sparking protests that the money is being used to compensate for the chronic underfunding of public schools. The record figure, $400.1 million from the 2019 to 2020 financial year, equates to $619 in parental payments per child per annum, based on the Department of Education and Training data showing there were just over 646,000 children enrolled in Victorian state schools last year. That would be about right because um, the Smith family to help a child that's disadvantaged ask you to put in about $624 a year, which quite a lot of us do. Um, the Smith family was set up by the um, New South Wales uh, Teachers Federation many years ago, and they used to bring children from the outback to, to Manly. But then nowadays, a lot of the work is just getting essentials for children in poor families so that they can go to school and have the essentials. It's quite a comment on the lack of funding in our state school system by the governments. Yeah, definitely. Back to you, Laurel. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, Victorians consistently pay more in parent payments for public schooling than any other state or territory. Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority data shows total parent payments to Victorian state schools have risen by 160 million or 66%. Since 2009. The payments cover essential learning items students keep, such as books and stationery, and curricular activities such as camps, excursions, incursions, and sports. The figure also includes revenue from canteens and uniform shops, charges for out of school hours care programs, and voluntary financial contributions. The Department of Education and Training revealed the growing cost to parents in response to a parliamentary question on notice by Victorian Greens MP and educational spokesman Sam Hibbins. 
Mr. Hibbins said, Australia had moved a very long way now from what should be a free public education. It's due to the underfunding of public schools that more and more costs are being shifted onto parents and sending your child to what should be a free public school is now costing parents a significant amount, he said. Victorian state schools have discretion set their own parent payment levels with no caps on what they can request, but they cannot deny a student access to curriculum if a family cannot or will not pay. Gail McCarty, Executive Officer of Parents Victoria, which advocates for state school families, said parent payments were often informally set according to a school community's capacity to contribute, with advantaged schools generally setting higher payments than disadvantaged schools. For example, Clifton Hill Primary School, which is in the top 1% of socio-educationally advantaged schools in the country, received $1,167 per student in fees, charges and parent payments in 2018, my school data shows. In the same year, Gowrie Street Primary School in Shepparton, which is in the bottom 4%, received only $287 per student. It shouldn't be about capacity to pay, Ms. McCarty said. It should be about how they can give children a quality educational to meet their potential without that pressure of having the capacity to pay. Parents are forking out levies and giving up their time to help fundraise for their children's education at state schools. Varying parent payment levels also demonstrated the ways in which schools were driven to get creative with to cover budget shortfalls, Ms. McCarty said. School leaders were putting time and effort into community fundraising efforts to cover basics, she said. They have got enough to do. Their priority is to teach our kids. A Department of Education spokesperson said schools must develop their own parent payment arrangements in accordance with department policy. These arrangements must be approved by school council, uploaded onto the school website and communicated to parents for transparency, the spokesperson said. Schools typically offer significant discounts and payment plans to families in need. Victoria's Auditor General investigated additional school costs for families in 2015 and found that the principles of a free, secular and compulsory education were first established in Victoria in the Education Act in 1872, but have been watered down over time. Parents of children in government schools are now required under law and government policy to pay for items such as books, stationery and camps, the Auditor General wrote in his report. According to the report, parents paid $310 million in parent payments in 2013 or $558 per student. Anna Hogan, a researcher in the University of Queensland School of Education, is researching the flow of private money into public schools via a grant with the Australian Research Council. She said fundraising in public schools has become the norm to prop up perceived government funding deficits. School environments are increasingly commercialised with corporate advertising on notice boards, in newsletters and on sports equipment, Dr Hogan said. Some public schools have raised up to $1 million in a year. They are buying computers, library books, teaching and learning resources, 
funding air conditioning and renovating schools to look more like their private school counterparts, said Dr Hogan. And there have been a few comments about that article. Joey B says, probably because we're funding private schools as well with our taxes. This is reprehensible. And then Mocker Mm -hmm. goes on to say, quote, Victorian state schools have discretion to set their own parent payment levels with no caps on what they can request, but cannot deny a student access to the curriculum if a family cannot or will not pay, end quote. So if parents refuse or cannot pay some fees to the state school, the school is still obligated to take them on. In private schools, this is typically not the case. A damn good reason to cut funding to private schools. Yes, or take them them over and make them public schools open to all children. And make our our public schools um, A1 places of education, which many of them are because of the um, teachers that are attracted to teach children from all walks of life. But we'll have a bit of a break and back to Maddie, who's going to tell us about a special teacher. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, welcome back to the Dogs Program. And uh, to finish off today, we have our usual good news story. And Maddie's going to tell us about a very special lady called Emma. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I'm very excited for this good news story. Emma is an absolute saint and I would love to tell her story. Um, Eight years ago, when Emma Bruce Greamer was an early career teacher, she had no idea what an SSP, School for Specific Purposes, was, despite both her parents being educators. There was no mention of SSPs in my university training or how to deal with students with complex disability. I didn't know what an SSP was until I turned up to work in one says the Western Sydney teacher, and she's still at that same SSP, 
Holroyd School, now a relieving assistant principal. She holds a Bachelor of Performance and a Master's in Secondary Teaching in Drama and a Master's in Special Education. Holroyd School has more than 100 staff, thanks to supplementary funding, and about 180 students split into 29 classes. It caters for K-12 learners with moderate to severe intellectual disabilities, and many attendees have multiple, including physical disabilities. Bruce Grimer recalls her first class of five boys aged 11 who were displaying challenging behaviours. After a particularly difficult day, she considered leaving special education. The next day, I was heating lunch for one of my students who was nonverbal. He was trying to get my attention, but I had my back to him and I didn't realise. And then I heard, Emma, my name was his first word. I've got a few stories like that. You know, it's the little wins. Holroyd uses a program in which teachers observe student behaviour to understand their sensory needs and help them manage their responses. For example, a student might have difficulty concentrating because of a fan whirring and clicking, and that might lead them to running around the classroom. If you don't know about their sensitivity to particular noises, you won't be able to help the student get into a zone to engage with learning. It looks like a challenging behaviour but it's actually a need that's not being met or communicated. Unless you understand their behaviour, the student will go past the point of being able to listen and be reasoned with, says Bruce Grimer. In 2020, Holroyd and other SSPs secured supplementary funding. The school used part of it to place a second teacher assistant in each of its classrooms. Extra staff help teachers manage classroom issues and allow them time and resources to put in place proactive strategies. Anecdotally, workplace injuries are down too. If you've got a student who needs one-on-one time to learn an augmented communication strategy, but there's another student who has a complex health needs and a third who presents with challenging behaviours, things can get difficult. Without the extra staff member, the first student likely won't get the attention they need to learn the communication strategy. In some classes, the extra pairs of hands have supported a program to improve the mobility of students with physical disabilities. Two people support each student working on their mobility, and this allows the third to work with others. Bruce Grimer says that lifting the staff-student ratio further would open the door to more opportunities for collegial support co-teaching and collaboration. It's a very specialised field. We've had a high turnover of our most experienced teachers and while we've got some wonderful new beginnings teachers, the increased staffing ratio would go a long way to providing important development opportunities for these teachers. Isn't that gorgeous? I think we can all agree that's a good idea. Yes. It's an incredibly tough job. You know, and uh, as we've discussed earlier on in the program, these schools are some of the most underfunded, yet with the most uh, high-needs students. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Most of them are, in fact, in the state sector. Exactly. Um, Mm. Yeah, the whole whole special education thing is, is, um, there's a very interesting history to it. But I don't think we've got time to go there today. No. Thank you very much to all our ladies who have helped us put the, uh, the program to air once again.
It's an absolute pleasure, Jean. It is a pleasure and an honour. And to Dale. And if you'd like to find out more, uh, you can find out more about the dogs at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. So it's bye for now from Maddie, Sorrel, Dale and me. Bye. 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 listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.